Hi, I'm Brendan McShane, the 2020 Nobleman Scholar, and this is the Candace History Podcast. Dundonald Park in Ottawa sits across the street from the apartment that Igor Guzenko, the first Cold War defector, previously resided. This apartment building was where Guzenko and his family hid from Soviet pursuers, and this park was where RCMP officers kept watch of the premises. Today, 75 years later, a plaque stands in Dundonald Park, memorializing Guzenko. I'm speaking today with Andrew Kabchak, former federal civil servant, autism advocate, amateur historian, and the author of several books, including Remembering Guzenko, The Struggle to Honor a Cold War Hero, which chronicles his journey lobbying the federal and municipal governments to memorialize Igor Guzenko. Thanks for joining me. Hello, Brandon. Thank you. How did you first become aware of the story of Igor Guzenko? Oh, years ago, uh, before you were born, I guess, in the uh, late 1970s. I was a teenager, and for a long time, there was a period when the news reports had updates for the Canadian public about the Royal Commission of Inquiry into RCMP Security Service wrongdoings. It was called the McDonald Commission. And so many revelations came out in that late 70s period about what the RCMP was doing in the name of national security. And I found it absolutely fascinating. My parents came from Poland during a time when, even though Stalin had been dead, the country was still very much Stalinist. And I was always wondering what Canadian government agency was keeping guard. And so I began after learning about what the RCMP was doing from these media reports to do some research of my own interest. And what I discovered was that all the history books relating to Canadian national security, they all start off basically with a chapter on Igor Guzenko. He basically defected right after World War II and essentially woke up the uh, Canadian intelligence and security community to understanding the nature of the new threat in the Cold War from the Soviets. And of course, many people who study this have suggested that, in fact, the threat started right up with the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917. But we didn't have any relations with the Soviets before the Nazi invasion of the Soviet Union in June of 1941. And when they subsequently opened an embassy in Canada, in Ottawa, they, well, instead of acting like real, real allies on friendly terms, uh, they penetrated the government with spies. Ruzenko exposed this, this penetration and revealed that, in fact, the Soviets had penetrated their espionage network, reached out to the United States as well as to England, and Ruzenko exposed the first of the atom bomb spies to be caught. So he, he informed basically the Western allies that the Manhattan Project had been penetrated by the Soviets. And to me, this was a fascinating story because the individual, when he defected, was one person who didn't have any prearranged escape route or connection. He basically took a big leap of faith when, when he walked out of that Soviet embassy that Canadian authorities would, would receive him. And there had been many examples of other 
Soviet agents who had attempted to defect and were subsequently found dead. One of the most recent ones, like at that time, was Ignacy Rice, who was a Soviet agent in Western Europe who, you know, sent a letter once to Stalin basically saying, I'm done, I don't want to do this anymore. And a month, a month later, I think it was in Switzerland, he was found murdered. So Buzanko took a huge risk and in that process ended up doing a, a tremendous service to Canada. And the more I read about him, the more I was just absolutely fascinated with what he did. This is clearly a topic you are passionate about, but how did it go from a personal passion to something you lobbied to be recognized and memorialized? Well, <laughs> thanks for asking. This is a project of mine that became at one point so consuming, I, I just couldn't let go. I felt like a pit bull who had latched onto a bone that he wasn't going to let go of. And I eventually <laughs> ended up writing this book just to give an idea of future students who want to engage in similar lobbying of the federal and municipal governments in Ottawa. What does it take to get a hero recognized in this country? Well, I moved to Ottawa from Toronto in 1989. And one of the first places that I visited was 511 Somerset Street which is the apartment building. It's a two-story brick building on Somerset Street, downtown Ottawa, just a little south of downtown, you know, apartment buildings is within walking distance. And that's the apartment number four on the second floor where Guzenko and his wife and their two-year-old son lived at the time of the defection. And I knew the location and I knew what it looked like because I'd seen pictures of it in other history books. But to my profound disappointment, the beautiful park across the street had absolutely no marker, no plaque, no monument, no statue, nothing to indicate that something dramatic happened here. And I think it's worth remembering that, you know, the Japanese surrendered on the USS Missouri in Tokyo Bay to General MacArthur on September 2nd, 1945. World War II was over. Everybody was hoping for the peace dividend would pay out. And instead, what we got was the Cold War. And what was the very first significant international incident of the Cold War? Most people will talk about, you know, the uh, Korean War or the, uh, you know, maybe the uh, Berlin airlift. But in fact, Guzenko's defection took place just three days after the Japanese surrendered. And I think that makes it the very first significant international incident of the Cold War. It certainly isn't what started the Cold War, but it certainly woke up the Western allies. And so I thought at that time, back in 1989, that one of these days, there's going to be a plaque here. And 10 years later, I had moved into the neighborhood with my wife. And I used to go to the park on a regular basis. And I just couldn't believe that there was still no plaque. So I started applying to both the federal government and the municipal government. My hope was that both of them would respond positively and both to recognize, you know, the Guzenko affair as something of significance to commemorate with a historic plaque. And if one didn't do it, maybe the other would. The best case, both would. And in the worst case, neither would, but at least I had to give it a try. And I was so thrilled it didn't take long before I got a, a letter from the mayor of Ottawa. At that time, it was uh, Jim Watson, who subsequently moved into uh, provincial politics and then came back. So he's still today 
the mayor of Ottawa, but back then he was much younger. And he wrote to me a letter saying, this is a good idea. I'm discussing it with civil servants here in the, the, the city bureaucracy. And before the end of the year, we're going to unveil this plaque. And I thought, that's absolutely wonderful. I'm, I'm thrilled. But unfortunately, what happened was the mayor resigned. There was city amalgamation and the bureaucrats that he assigned the file to postponed it. And when I found out about that, I was terribly disappointed because anytime bureaucrats delay things, there can always be subsequent delays. And when there's subsequent delays, eventually it's quite possible that the matter would be shelved. I was really disappointed. And what really also made it a little bit even more disappointing was that in the meantime, I had managed to contact the Guzenko family and found out that Svetlana Guzenko was still alive. And I was so much hoping that either the, the city or the federal or both plaques would be unveiled while she was still alive and could come and see this expression of, of gratitude by the government on behalf of the citizens of this country. So unfortunately, the following year, when I contacted the city to follow up, a new manager got a hold of the, the file, and she basically put the kibosh to it and said, oh, no, the previous mayor didn't, didn't have authority to do this. And I was absolutely heartbroken. And then I found out that Svetlana Guzenko passed away. She uh, unfortunately passed away, I think it was September of 2001 or so. Then what happened is, you know, once I got that letter from the mayor originally, I just couldn't let go of this. So I kept calling and, and, and lobbying my, you know, city, city councilor. But I was also making some progress with the Historic Sites and Monuments Board of Canada. And that's the national agency that commemorates persons, places, and events. And in this case, the person couldn't be commemorated because he hadn't been dead yet for 25 years, I think the, uh, the time limit was, but the event of the Guzenko Affair could be commemorated. And so that required the Historic Sites and Monuments Board to agree and then to make a recommendation to the minister, and it was up to the minister. Well, of course, these organizations don't meet every week. They only meet, believe it or not, twice a year, and I was on the agenda but it kept getting bumped as they were had other things to discuss. And eventually, I, I got wins that the, the board had dealt with. The matter was on the agenda and kept getting bumped from the agenda of the Historic Sites and Monuments Board at each one of their semi-annual meetings. But then finally, I, I got word that they had made a recommendation to the minister. And one day, it was uh, 2002, I got a letter acknowledging that the minister had made the official designation of the Guzenko Fair as an event of national historic significance and was committing Heritage Canada to unveil a plaque in the park. And I was told that would probably take another two years. See, this process in Canada of commemorating historic events is one that requires a lot of patience. But over at the city, you know, I had been lobbying a long time after that manager told me that the mayor didn't have authority. And I managed to convince the, the parties at the, at the city, you know, most notably the city clerk, that if he didn't have authority because he didn't follow the right procedure, then I, I begged them to start over again and follow their procedure. They agreed to, and they contacted as part of the process, 
They consulted with the federal government, but instead of asking Heritage Canada, which is where the Historic Sites and Monuments Board was dealing with my application, they contacted Global Affairs Canada, which was the former Foreign Affairs External Affairs Department. So the response from, from external affairs was, don't do it because it's going to upset the, so, the Russians at the Russian embassy. And I got a letter from the clerk saying, on the advice of the federal government, we are not going to go ahead with this plaque. But I got that letter just the month before Sheila Copps, as the Minister of Federal Heritage, sent me the letter saying that on the advice of the Historic Sites and Monuments Board of Canada, she was officially designating the Guzenko Affair as a historic event and was going to unveil this plaque. So I wrote right away to the city clerk and I included copies of articles that were in the, the National Post or newspaper because, of course, press releases had been set out. And so there were some newspaper articles and I said, what do you mean uh, the federal government doesn't want this historic designation and plaque? They just admitted and told the media that they're doing it. So, of course, the city clerk had some egg on his face and uh, wrote back to me and said, oh, we're going to review our position. So this was, I think, the third or fourth time that the city of Ottawa was starting to review its position and I just couldn't give up. And fortunately, they decided in 2003 to unveil a city plaque, which is a beautiful panel in Don Donald Park across the street from 511 Somerset Street. And the following year, the federal government unveiled their plaque. And when they did, there was a beautiful editorial in the Ottawa Citizen, and I called them and I thanked them for their editorial because they were saying this was a long overdue plaque for Guzenko. And they said to me, Andrew, we know how long and how difficult it has been for you to do this. So we suggest that you write a book. And I was so happy they said that because I am by nature a note taker. And I put together all of my emails and letters and notes of telephone conversations. I printed them all off and I put them all in binders. And believe it or not, I had 18 binders over four and a half years. And I went through them and I highlighted the major milestones and wrote this book called Remembering Guzenko, The Struggle to Honor a Cold War Hero. And I'm very happy to say that when it came out, I got the second daughter, Alexandra. She wrote an introduction, a preface to the book, and she was so kind. And in this edition that's now available on Amazon, Evie Wilson, the eldest daughter, also wrote an addendum at the end. And to my knowledge, this is the only book in print where members of the descendants of Igor and Svetlana Guzenko have contributed in writing part of, of their story and their positive support for this project. One of the nicest things that I'm happy to, to say and would like to share with you and your listener is consider this. When the city unveiled its plaque. A number of members of the Guzenko family showed up to the unveiling ceremony, and one of them was one of the daughters by the name of Alexandria. And she was asked by CTV, would you like to give an interview? And up until then, and throughout her entire life, she had always shied away from any public recognition. 
of being a member of the Guzenko family. I mean, after the family defected, they were the first family in Canada to get RCMP witness protection. And they had false names or a new name and a new identity. And so she was so happy about this unveiling and this recognition that she allowed herself to be taped by CTV News. And a clip showed on the national news that evening about this ceremony. And there was a short clip of her saying, to be able to say my name and Guzenko in the same sentence is a wonderful thing. Well, at that time, she lived in a medium-sized town, let's say, in central Ontario. And she wrote to me a few days later. She thanked me for the effort to get the historic plaque. And she said that when she came home, after many people had seen her face in that report on CTV National News, she received a lot of phone calls and messages from friends and people who knew her, but who didn't know her background. And they all expressed surprise and excitement about the plaque unveiling. And she wrote to me, thank you for lifting a veil off my identity. And the email that she wrote to me was so moving and so touching that I, I printed it off and I had it framed because if it's the only thing that happened as a result of this commemoration and these plaque unveilings, all the effort was worth it because if you can imagine living your life, always keeping your identity secret for security purposes, but then after decades and decades to suddenly have a degree of acknowledgement and feel comfortable enough to say who you really are. It's something that I think most people simply cannot imagine or fathom. And to the extent that it helped her to be able to breathe freely and enjoy that newfound sense of freedom, then for me, it was a tremendous effort that gave a tremendous amount of satisfaction and made it all worthwhile. That's wonderful. Having now gone through this process, trying to get a historic figure and event that you're passionate about recognized, do you have any advice for people who are passionate about their own historic stories and would like to promote them in Canada? Yeah, well, I mean, hey, you know, <laughs> if you know any historic persons, places, or events that you think need or should be recognized and would like to go through the Historic Sites and Monuments Board of Canada for purposes of getting federal recognition and plaque, by all means, I encourage history lovers to pursue such projects where they believe they're worthwhile. But the most important thing, I believe, is to have patience. And that's something that has always been a challenge because you're really are dealing with bureaucracies that are not instantaneous in their responses. When you have boards that only meet twice a year and they already have full agendas, you know, things take time. So the best thing is to make your application as informative as possible so that the bureaucrats reviewing it don't have to spend extra time filling in the gaps. If you can make the application as comprehensive as possible, you know, then be patient. 
But at the same time, I don't like to say don't take no for an answer, but one has to be prepared to push and to push. And in some cases where, for some strange reason, there's controversy, you have to be prepared to push a little more. Well, it's quite an achievement, though I understand this is not your only historic work on Soviet or Eastern European history, as you've written a couple other books. Can you tell me a little bit about those? Oh, well, thank you very much. Yes, indeed. In the past year, I've published two other books that are also available on Amazon. One, I'm very happy to say, my grandfather, Stanisław Kafczak, was a Polish officer in World War I. And at that time, Poland was you know, occupied by its three neighbors, right? Prussia, Russia, and Austria. He grew up in the Austrian zone of occupation, so he wore an Austrian uniform. However, he, along with his fellow Polish officers in the Austrian army, were very much struggling to try to set the stage for the re-emergence of the Polish state. So he wrote his memoirs in 1936, and I managed recently to arrange for them to be translated, and I got my 95-year-old father to write an introduction in which he speaks of his memories of his father. And as I read through the book, I was absolutely amazed because most World War I books, typically in, in Canada and in the English and the French-speaking world, talk about the Western Front. And this book, on the other hand, discusses the Eastern Front, the battling in, in Galicia with the Russians. And it also describes in the second half of the war how the Austrians sent him and his unit to fight the Italians on the southern front. And what was absolutely fascinating to me was how much the Poles actually wanted the Italians to win. And he gives many examples where during firefights, for example, he pointed out that the machine guns, the Polish machine guns were deliberately calibrated to miss their targets. And he quotes allegorically, so to speak, uh, that the, the Polish machine guns were shooting into God's window, meaning they were just shooting into the air. At the end of the war, when Poland was recreated, he became in, in charge of the area known in the, the town of Novosonch and was involved in border skirmishes with the Ukrainians and the Czechs. But then, of course, in 1919-1920, there was the Polish-Bolshevik War. And so his book is called Dying in Echoes, Memoirs of the War 1914 to 1920. And for people who are interested in that era and that location, the book I find, you know, I'm, I'm particularly biased, of course, but I think it's a wonderful book. And in fact, one of the deans of Polish literature, a Professor Julian Krzyżanowski, who's written many books about the history of Polish literature. And in one of his big tomes, he wrote that when it comes to the war memoirs, that my grandfather's book was the best of the books in Polish literature. So this book is now available. And the other one that I just published, which I'm, I'm so proud of, it's something I've been wanting to do for a long time. My grandfather was a lawyer between the wars, and as World War II came around, he was mobilized again as an officer in the Polish army. The Germans attacked Poland on September 1st, and the Russians, the Soviets, did on September 17th. 
he was among the 250,000 Polish soldiers who were captured by the Red Army. And unfortunately, he was among the 21,857 Polish prisoners, including 10,000 officers, who were murdered by the NKVD in April of 1940 in what became known as the Katyn Forest Massacre. It was in April of 1943 that the Nazis discovered one of the mass graves. And for 50 years, the Soviets maintained that it was a Nazi crime. In fact, it was, and everybody knew, it was a Soviet crime. And it was in 1990 that Gorbachev confirmed that it was a Soviet crime and gave the Polish government some documents about NKVD troop movements in 1941, but then it was Yeltsin, the Russian president in 1992, who confirmed and released the execution order signed by Stalin himself. So what I've done is I I wrote a book titled The Catton Forest Massacre, an annotated bibliography of books in English. And what it is, is a 240-page book in which I summarize the tragedy, the history of the tragedy, And then I provide chapters discussing each of the 38 books that have appeared in English since the war that either directly or indirectly contribute to the general knowledge of what happened in the Catton Forest Massacre. And, you know, at the beginning of the interview, you asked me what got me interested. In fact, the NKVD, the forerunner of the KGB, They murdered my grandfather along with all those other Polish prisoners. And I always thought anybody who gives the NKVD a hard time, especially in Canada, is a hero. And the truth is that nobody Mm. gives the NKVD a harder time in Canada than Guzenko. And the Mitrokin archives, this one defector who wrote this book with Christopher Andrew, the Cambridge University professor about 20 years ago, he confirmed there that the defection of Igor Guzenko basically froze Soviet operations, their secret operations in Canada, and put them back about 15 years. I think that's a fantastic way to bring this story full circle. I really appreciate your efforts in bringing recognition to this significant but underrepresented part of our history. Thank you very much, Brendan. It was my pleasure. Thank you.